So this morning we are going to continue our little Advent series of Why Does It Matter? And we are going to be looking um, at the divinity of Christ. So we have covered um, the Trinity and how the incarnation and how Christmas um, is really about the Trinity. And then we have looked fully at um, Jesus, more specifically at Jesus, and said that Jesus is um, both uh, fully God and fully man. And so last week we talked about what does it mean? What do we mean when we say that he is fully man? And uh, why is that good news at a big picture level? And why is that good news for us in the, in the day-to-day? And we talked about how um, in Christ, being fully human, he walked the road that we have walked. And so his temptation, he experienced every temptation and experienced temptation to its fullest and knows it um, far better than even we do. And so because of that, we know we have a great high priest um, who is um, able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And he um, loves us still. And um, so this, this morning, I want to then shift and look at the other nature of Christ, and that is that he is fully God. And this one is both, this is kind of tricky in that uh, in one way, uh, it is the most obvious one. It is the one that we would all declare, like even if we didn't fully understand the humanity of Jesus and we know he walked around as a human, but we also know that he is, that he is God. But on the other hand, I think it's also harder for us to grasp because we are humans. And so in, in a very real way, last week, even though it, it takes some more nuance to describe, okay, what do we mean when we say Jesus is fully human and um, and, and all of those things that, that come with it, we also then can relate because we say, well, okay, well, I'm human and Jesus is human, so I can relate to that. But his divine nature is the one that I think we intellectually say, well, of course, Jesus is God, but of course, it's hard for us to really relate to that because we are not divine. And so I thought about how to do that this morning. And if, if Christ is truly divine, which... I believe that he is, then it makes sense that we would just be in awe of him. And so this morning is going to be a little different in that I want us to just hear the words of scripture. And I would invite you to just hear what God has written and meditate on it. The beauty of the divinity of Jesus Christ. So let's pray together to ask for God's help in doing that. Father, we are seeking to understand things that are beyond our ability to understand. And yet, you have made a way for us to know you and understand you the best that we can and to love you and to follow you, and to be known as yours. God, I pray that this morning we would be struck with awe, not because of human words or illustrations, but by just seeing the story unfold, seeing who you are and what you have done, what that means for us as a large family and also as individual sons and daughters today. Pray for your help, Holy Spirit, 
We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So what do we mean when we say that Christ was and is fully God? I I thought it's probably important that we just state that really clearly so that we all understand what we mean. And we simply mean that. That Jesus Christ, the man who walked among us, who who took on flesh and and dwelt among us and, and lived the life we could not live and died the death that we deserved and rose again from the dead, Jesus Christ was and is and remains fully God. At no time did Jesus relinquish his divinity. He did not give up his divinity to become man. But like we talked about last week, that the, the Son of God, the divine Son of God, took on human flesh and became fully God and fully man. And this morning, I want to look at just read, read some scripture and just kind of marvel at this thing taking place and how God has been telling this story from the beginning and how he fulfilled it um, in the incarnation. And then look at why that matters for for all of us and, and why it matters today for you in this moment. One of the most common passages, prophecies in the Old Testament about The birth of Christ is found in Isaiah chapter 9. In verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then, of course, we know centuries later in describing the birth of Jesus, Luke records that an angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We've talked about many times how people were expecting a Messiah. And there were different sects of Judaism that believed different things about who the Messiah was. But the theme behind all of that was deliverance. The theme behind all of that was that God would deliver his people from their oppressors. He would deliver them even from their very selves and that he would unite them and call them and be his God and they would be his people and they would walk with them as they were called to walk with him. And they were expecting that God would deliver them. And, and it's, it's sometimes people, some of them thought this is one big deliverance. Other people thought like, well, this is just the next deliverance, that they were in exile, that the kingdom was divided, and they believed that God was going to deliver them like he had so many times before. So they were expecting a Messiah, a deliverer. They were expecting a son of man in the, in the vein of, of Moses or Noah or Abraham or David. They were not expecting the Son of Man. They could not have possibly understood what God was planning. Even though the prophet Isaiah said that a child would be born, to us a son would be given, and his name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are divine names. So even as Isaiah is saying these things, you can imagine people hearing them and saying, well, well that sounds like God. How is God born? And then we see in Luke, 
But they could not have grasped something so wonderful. They'd been waiting for deliverance. When God's people were in slavery, God called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And Moses, when when God calls Moses, Moses has a very simple question for God. Who are you? What is your name? Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So what Moses is doing is looking for credibility. And, and this relates to Jesus because he's talking about this deliverer. He's saying, he's saying okay, if I'm going to deliver your people, if I'm going to be able to get them to come, like, I got to tell them who sent me. I can't just walk up to a million people and say, hey, follow me. We're getting out of here. I got to tell them who it is that sent me. I got to give them some kind of evidence that, the, that you have sent me. So what should I tell them? Who should I say sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Moses asks God, and and God responds with, My name is I am. This is his name forever. And hundreds and hundreds of years later, the people of God were looking for deliverance again believing that there would be a day when they would all be united under God. The prophet Isaiah said, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And in that same time, Micah prophecies about the deliverer who is to come and says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little, to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So these are the things that the people knew about this deliverer, that God has declared his name, that I'm the one who sends the deliverer. And and any deliverer that has come, he has to come in the name of the Lord, in the name of of God. And so Moses is saying, who are you that I can can tell them who sent me? And he says, my name is I am. And then Isaiah says, when this deliverer comes, the lame will walk, the the mute will speak. These things are going to happen. You will notice that these things will will take place. These are the signs. And Micah says this very strange thing. He says that the the one that that is going to come is, first of all, going to come from a place that is off the radar, which, of course, is, is the way that God works. 
He uses the weak to shame the strong. But, but not only one that comes from this small, tiny place that's, that's hardly worth being mentioned. But Micah says, For from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. One who is yet to come, who comes from before. I wonder if Micah even understood what he was saying. How, how is one to come that is coming from before? It's like a riddle. And all these things are like this puzzle that God is putting together. It's like when you, you have all these pieces scattered all over eternity. And God is just putting these pieces in place, telling the story of what is to come. And then a baby born in Bethlehem who grows up, who does miracles. And all of a sudden, people are hearing reports of the lame being able to walk, and the mute speaking, and the blind seeing, and the poor hearing the good news. And then we read this in the Gospel of John, where the religious leaders are accusing Jesus of having a demon because all these things that are happening, the people are looking and they're wondering, they're murmuring, they're saying, this seems like the prophecies. Is this possible? As the puzzle pieces are clicking together more and more and they're looking at it and saying, wait a second. This sounds like our deliverer. This sounds like the Messiah. And, and they're, so they're starting to accuse Jesus and they accuse him at one point of having a demon because how else could he do all these things? And Jesus says to them that he doesn't have a demon. He says, but if anyone keeps his word that they would not taste death. And so the religious leaders unwittingly get used in one of the greatest interactions in all of eternity as they utter out the phrase like they won't taste death. Who do you think you are? Even Abraham tasted death. Are you saying that you're greater than Abraham? Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The one who was to come, who came from old. The one not sent only by I am, but who is I am. The name of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, divine Son of God, fully God. And we see it all over the Gospels, the traits of God on display as puzzle piece after puzzle piece clicks into place. His omnipotence on display as he quiets the storm. His omniscience on display as he knows others' thoughts before they even speak them. His omnipresence on display in, in, in Matthew 18 when he says, wherever two or three are gathered, I am there. And in 28, um, in, in the Great Commission, he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Not to mention him walking through a walked, locked door after the resurrection. His sovereignty on display as he forgives sins. 
And instead, instead of him saying, thus saith the Lord, like every other prophet, he says, I say to you. He's worthy of worship as he says that Abraham rejoiced at his coming. The angels worship and sing his praises. Clearly, at every turn, the Bible is emphatic that Jesus is divine. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, the deliverer that had to come for God's people had to be God himself. Unlike the smaller ways that God's people had been delivered in the past where he delivered through a human, whether, again, through Moses or David or Gideon or whoever, this time, for a full deliverance, there's only one who can make peace. And it's what has been declared from the beginning that salvation is from the Lord. Man is not able to save himself. Even a, a perfect man could not save himself, let alone all of humanity. This plan of salvation was devised by God. It was created by God. It was carried out by God. All through the Old Testament, it is known that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is not by our works. God is constantly demonstrating this that it is all from him. His promise to Noah, his promise to uh, an elderly Abraham with the child Isaac, his promise to deliver God's people from Egypt. Even Jonah in the belly of the fish wraps up his plea to God with the line, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then he is vomited out onto dry land. God is the one who delivers. And the Messiah that they were waiting for, for real deliverance, could not be only man, but had to be God, because salvation is from the Lord. And all of those deliverances in the Old Testament all have as a backdrop the shadows of a great deliverer who would defeat the greatest enemy of God's people. And the constant reminder that it is God alone who delivers that it is God alone who fulfills his promises. Why does he go to such great lengths to click each one of these pieces into place for us? So we would know that when our deliverer came, he would come from nowhere else but from God. That no human could rescue us, but it has to be God. Because our greatest enemy is not a nation that oppresses us, it is the sin within us. Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Dead. We're dead in our trespasses because of our sins. 
And someone has to deliver us from those sins. And who could possibly do that? Taking the punishment for one person who deserves death is possible. And maybe some would even be willing to do that. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He takes our sin on himself. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You can take the blame for one other person, but you got one life to give for that. And that only takes the blame for that one thing that that person did, and then that's it. But only in God, only in the divine one, Christ, who fully human, lived the life that we lived, were meant to live, and died the death that we deserved, demonstrates his willingness and his love for the people. But it is Christ, fully God, who is able to take the full weight of the wrath of God on his shoulders once and for all. Make sure that we understand this, that we don't skip by, because right now in our culture, it is very common to diminish the divinity of Christ. Many people want to just say that Jesus is a good teacher, and this has been going on. There's nothing new under the sun. But if Jesus is just a good teacher, if he was only a man, only a prophet, only a moral example, one who showed us what we could be, then he could not save us. He would be a martyr He'd be an example, maybe an inspiration, but not a savior. We would still be dead in our sins. And we would be, above all, the most to be pitied. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The reason why I want us to just sit and marvel at that is because if we say that Christ is divine, if we believe that, if we listen to what Scripture has been telling us from the beginning, and if we believe that the weight of our sin is so great that it requires God to deliver us, that I cannot make up for it on my own, I cannot deliver myself, if I really believe that, then what does that say about the life I live? What does it say about how I view Christ? who is the divine one. He's not just a martyr who died for me for me long ago, but he is this God, the Son of God, who reigns over all. And just like the humanity of Jesus that we talked about last week, this is the good news, that God has delivered his children from slavery to sin. But again, God does not leave us there. So why does this matter today? Like, so why does this big theological understanding, because this is what is so common in the church, is that we get these things, that you could listen to all of this, and if you didn't take my invitation to just let the words of Scripture wash over you, if you just are depending on me to supply that awe, then you may be left flat right now. And saying, yeah, I know all that. 
do you know it? Does it radically determine the course of your life? Does it radically change you? Does it matter today as you leave this place and you go home and you go to your to-do list or you go to whatever you have planned for the day? Does it matter? It matters. It matters in so many miraculous ways. This great high priest who understands your temptation and has compassion on you because he walked the road you are walking. He's not only the one who lived for you and died for you, but the one who is able to be raised from the dead for you to defeat sin and death for you. So when you think about the divinity of Jesus Christ, don't let it be just a statement in your head. Consider these things. Consider the power of Jesus. There's power in that name. Power, not wishful thinking, not good vibes or good thoughts, but genuine power. Do you live like you have access to that power? I mean, do you, does it not cause you to grieve when you watch someone struggling or sending out requests or going through tragedy or trials on Facebook and they say, please send good thoughts? Does your heart not just cry out and say, my good thoughts mean nothing, but I have access to one whose name does matter? Or do we just sit there and say, yeah, I'll pray. And in our hearts, it feels the same as good thoughts. Do we know that in the name of Jesus, we see the power to calm the storm with a word, the power to forgive sins of all eternity, the power to heal, the power to raise the dead to life, that in him all things hold together? Paul, in in his letter to the Colossians, says this passage, just let this wash over you. This is one of, this has been such an encouragement to me over the years. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Do you ever think about the fact that Jesus Christ is the head of this church and in him all things hold together? Do you let that sink in? He's not a figurehead of this church. He's not one that we put a a painting up of and say, here's our our founding pastor. He's the one that started all of this 2,000 years ago when he rose from the dead. He is currently actively the head of this church body. And he holds it together. 
Not our strategies, not our programs, not our leadership, not our good stewardship of our resources. He holds it together. He holds all the things together across the church, beyond our church, across the world, as Christians are sitting on a a beachhead being assassinated by those who would persecute him, or as pastors are in prison who are struggling and and have been buried long ago and nobody knows where they are. He holds all those things together. He is the head of the church currently. And if he is over all of that, And he holds all of those things together. How much more does he hold you together? This great high priest who understands you better than you understand yourself is also the one who holds you together. Do not just look to him as a brother who knows what it's like to be tempted, but the one who has the power to overcome all temptation, the power to defeat all sin. Whatever feels like it is breaking you apart this morning, whatever feels like it is pulling at you from every angle, it cannot break you if you are in Christ. It cannot pull you apart because he is the one who holds you together. And if he has that much power, I am always so amazed at the humility then that is on display in Christ. Consider the humility of Jesus as he faces a mocking creation that he created And he calls us to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There are some who take that passage that he emptied himself and said, well, what does that mean? Well, that's many, many in, the, in history um, have taken that and said, well, see, he gave up his divinity. So yes, we know that Jesus left that and that he was um, this glorious, like he was the son of God, but he came to earth and left all that behind, left his divinity behind and became human. And so he was human and all that. And so while he was, was holy and, and was, was perfect, um, he wasn't fully divine in that day. He somehow lessened that. But that's not what this passage is saying. And even reading it a couple of times shows you that's not what he's talking about here. That he did not empty himself of his divinity and of his power. He emptied himself by becoming a servant. He gave up his glory and his standing. He subjected himself, the creator subjecting himself to his creation, willingly, voluntarily, becoming a servant. He set aside his glory, not his power, out of love for us. He carries out the Father's will. That is unheard of humility. 
This is the one who knows you. This is the one who loves you. This is the one with the power to save you. This is the one who holds all things together. This is the one who will bring you home. Consider the power and the humility. Consider the sufficiency of Jesus. If he knows you that well and loves you that much and is that powerful, what on earth could you be afraid of? Imagine a person that you love more than your own life. Imagine a person that you, that you would say, I would, I would give my life for that person. A person that you feel responsible for or indebted to or whatever the case is, but someone that you would do anything for. Then imagine you really could do anything for them. I think every single one of us who has loved someone like that has at some point felt a hopelessness and a powerlessness, right? As you watch and you say, if I could take this away, I would take this away. I've sat in so many hospital rooms and at bedsides and at funerals just thinking, if I, if I could take this away, I would take it away. But imagine that you really could What would you stop at? What lengths would you not go for them? If you could do anything for them, if you could release them from any pain or any suffering, if you could assure them of any success, if you could take care of anything for them, what would you stop at? And even if they didn't understand you, understand that, that what you were doing was, was best for them, what would keep you from doing what was best for them? Would you let anything truly harmful happen to them? Is there anything that they would lack? Would you let them go hungry, unloved, unprotected? Of course you wouldn't. And that's what Jesus is saying. When he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So if you and I who are evil would know to do that, if we had all power at our, uh, at our disposal for the people that we love and care about, if we know, even, even us would say, we would say, well, I'd stop at nothing for them. And you and I who are evil would do that. How much more can you trust God who is perfect to fully deliver you, to completely forgive you, to wholly satisfy you, to love you deeply as the great high priest and to keep you together? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, whatever you need to be delivered from this morning, you need to lay claim to the reality that you have a great high priest who understands fully where you are and who loves you and demonstrated it on the cross and whose name carries with it the power to do anything. And you can know Look in the middle of that passage. I'm even guilty of this, but we often, in that passage right here, we often get rid of that middle paragraph. You may see it sometimes. People like to put a little dot, dot, dot. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Dot, dot, dot. No, in all these things you're more than conquerors through him. And we do that because we say, well, what in the world, Paul? Why would you put that in the middle of that phrase? That is a great passage, except for that whole we're being killed all day long like lambs led to a slaughter. Who wants to read that? Anybody got a coffee mug with that on it? (laughs) Of course you don't. You don't want to read that while you're drinking your coffee in the morning. But that's the promise. That's the disconnect that we always have because we hear a message and we say, okay, in Jesus, I can be delivered from anything. And so I'm facing this trial. And so I'm just going to claim in the name of Jesus that he delivers me from this. And when he doesn't, I turn from him because I was just a bunch of feel good nonsense. It's a myth. But he says, he says, you're going to go through all these things. He's not saying you won't have tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. He's saying you're going to have all those things and none of them can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. None of them. So when you are praying for deliverance for whatever it is that feels like is ripping you apart, you can know that you have a great high priest who hears your cries. You have one who has stopped at nothing to rescue you. Who has the power to deliver you. And if he doesn't, it's because he loves you. And he will hold you together. So that for all eternity, you will sing the praises of the God who created you, who knitted you together, who hears your cries, and who delivered you from the greatest enemy you have ever known. And he has secured for you a sonship 
and an inheritance that you will enjoy for all eternity. And as chaotic as it may feel from day to day and as fragile as it may feel, it is not because he holds it all together. What fear do you have that Jesus cannot deliver you from? What desire do you have that Jesus cannot fulfill? What sin do you have that Jesus cannot forgive with compassion? Where else would you go? He is all things. The Son of God, fully divine, took on flesh to deliver us. And in the humanity and divinity of Christ, we see the God who created you, knows you, understands you, loves you, and the one who holds all of creation together just as surely as he's holding you. And next week, Robbie is going to take a look at one more prophecy that points directly to that deliverance and how he does that in your day-to-day life. And why it matters and why it is so beautiful. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you know all things. You have known us from before we existed on this earth because you created us. And you know us still in our heart of hearts. You know the depths of our sin that we have not even navigated to. Yet you love us. And Jesus, you emptied yourself of that glory and that standing to subject yourself to those you created. And you made peace for us on the cross. pray we would be in awe of that, that we would be struck at your mighty power, and that through that we would know we have nothing to fear, and that we absolutely can call out to you for deliverance. So God, I do. You tell us to ask you. So we do. We pray. God, I pray for the people in this room that you would deliver them from the trials that they have, but God, not our will, your will because you know what is best for us. And we can trust you fully to bring that to bear. So God, I pray we would radically depend upon you today, that we would see you as fully God, who reigns now and for all eternity, that we would surrender to you and submit to your will and rejoice in you we would marvel at your power, marvel at your great love, and that that would stir our hearts to love you, to find our identity in you, to find our hope in you, and to be held together by you. Pray this in Jesus' name.